0: Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance podcast. My name is Patrick Myers, and I'm with my colleague Suzanne Spradley today. We're both attorneys with the NFP Benefits Compliance Team, and we're here to discuss the latest news that impact employee benefits plans. Today, we're gonna focus on the much-awaited Supreme Court case, California v. Texas, and uh, we'll discuss where we're gonna go from here. Suzanne, let's first set the stage quickly with the background on the case. So the Supreme
1: Court heard oral arguments last year on the constitutionality of the individual mandate under the ACA. And what was at issue was whether the mandate was now beyond congressional powers given that it no longer raised tax revenue and then if so, whether other parts of the ACA were so intertwined with that mandate that they must be struck as well. And if we look back to back to 2012, the issue of the constitutionality of the individual mandate came before the Supreme Court. I'm sure all of you remember that well. Um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion and it upheld the mandate as constitutional exercise of Congress's taxing authority. And again, I don't I don't, if I remember correctly, neither side actually argued that fact. And so we were all a bit surprised that the opinion opinion opinion, took that turn. But he reasoned that the mandate was a tax because if a person failed to maintain health insurance, the individual paid a penalty for noncompliance and that produced revenue for the government and thus it had attributes of a tax. Well, if we, we fast forward then in 2017, Congress set the penalty at zero in an attempt to repeal the ACA. And without going into too many technicalities, The mandate stayed on the books because there were not enough votes to strike it down, but the penalty could be amended through the reconciliation process, which, as we all have heard so often now since the ACA was passed, that requires fewer votes. Um, Shortly thereafter, you saw several states plus a few individuals uh, brought a lawsuit arguing that the individual mandate was no longer could no longer constitute a tax, and so therefore it was no longer justified under congressional taxing authority. Many people have looked at this like a non-issue. They said, of course, why are we even discussing this? If there's no penalties, of course individuals don't have to comply. Um, But others believe that compliance is influenced by non-financial factors, and some people will continue to feel like they must comply if it remains on the books, just because they want to go along with, obviously, what the law says. But the real issue, I think, is more viewed as whether it's severable from the ACA and whether it could have an impact on any other portion of the
0: ACA. Indeed. And it's interesting that uh, the sides have switched positions on this issue. You know, back in 2012, the people who defended the, the, the ACA, uh, asserted that the individual mandate uh, itself was completely essential to the ACA, one of the s- legs of the three-legged stool, as they as they said. Right. Uh, and that it was incredibly important uh, to keep it keep it alive. And now now that they're defending it again, they're saying that no, we've now shown that the individual mandate is itself not as essential as we originally asserted. And so, you know, if it's to be t- struck down as unconstitutional, it's still severable from the ACA and the ACA can stand.
1: Right, right. And so, if we look back at that that three-legged stool argument, the reason for that really was because um, it was it as seen as an incentive for individuals to enroll in coverage. Because if you remember thinking back to prior to the ACA, which is hard to think back to, but in health insurance carriers were able to underwrite based on your health status. And so, if you had bad health claims, for example, you came in, then you had a higher premium rate than if you didn't, you were a healthy individual. And so the idea that insurers could no longer rate on that basis meant that there was some potential adverse selection that was going to occur. You would have a bunch of individuals with bad health issues come into the marketplace, want coverage, and those that were healthy would remain out. Uh, so the ACA individual mandate required all individuals to purchase health insurance. And so the idea was that the risk would then be mitigated because it would be spread out and you would have a lot of healthy individuals buying coverage along with those few that were unhealthy. Um, and so uh, obviously that was that was the idea of why it was so intertwined in part with the ACA.
0: Right. So once the mandate was set to zero back in 2017, the, the states and those individuals brought that lawsuit, right?
1: Right. Yes. And so they brought it in the district court that was in the Northern District of Texas. And uh, the finding in 2018 by the court was that they upheld the plaintiff's position and they held that the law that set the penalty for the individual mandate to zero basically rendered that individual mandate to be unconstitutional. But then the court went even further than either party had argued and struck down the entire ACA and said, really, it was not the position of the court to make that determination of how the individual mandate was intertwined with the ACA, and it was not in position to make that analysis. And so it just struck down the entire ACA, um, again, which went beyond what either party had even asked for at that point. Um, Of course, the party, uh, the the opposing party appealed. It went up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, who also rendered its opinion um, in 2019, agreeing that the mandate was unconstitutional. But then it vacated that portion of the ruling that struck down the entire ACA. And instead, it remanded the case for additional analysis on the question of severability. So it was sent it back to the district court, told them that actually you do need to go through this analysis. But in the meantime, it was um, the parties both sought certification by the Supreme Court, and they agreed to take up the case and to hear the case, but not on an expedited basis. They had hoped for it to be done on an expedited basis, um, and they did not agree to that, but they held; they did hear the case um, in in normal course.
0: Right, and and now that the ACA in its entirety is on the table, the stakes are really high in the Supreme Court. Everybody's looking to the Supreme Court with... Even more heightened interest than they would have if if just the individual mandate was right. that issue here. So uh, what happened?
1: Well, I mean, many thought many people thought that it was unlikely that it would be viewed as inseverable because we've been operating under a zero penalty now, so basically an ineffective individual mandate for some time, and the and the ACA has operated just fine. So it would be really difficult to go back and say no, the ACA really relies on this individual mandate at this point. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, the the Supreme Court is not necessarily looking at its current effect, but going to look at it from a legal, purely legal basis and how it's reasoned. So there was still a lot of anxiousness, I guess you could say, on how the justices would rule. What's interesting about the opinions, as you get later in the term, the opinions are typically released on Mondays and Thursdays, and they're done in order of seniority, of who's writing the opinion. So the, the more senior you get in justice, the later in the term, the opinion will be released. We assumed that it would be Justice Roberts writing the opinion since he wrote the last one, but in fact, it was Justice Breyer, which is interesting from the, this is as a side note, because that is the justice that the left is pressing to step down due to his age. So many viewed this um, drafting of the opinion as either his swan song or as a statement that in fact, he is here to stay. Um, of course, again, that's trying to uh, just uh, guess at why Justice Breyer was the one chosen to write the opinion, um, but it, it could have been possibly the most important opinion of the term.
0: Right. Right. And, I, of course, I, I learned uh, waiting, eagerly waiting the opinion myself, as, as we all did on the, on the team, uh, that uh, anticipating these opinions is almost as much an art as a science. Right. And reading the tea leaves as who's going to write it and why they're writing it is also an interesting exercise and uh, figuring out what's going on behind the curtain, so to speak. But, you know, it ended up, the opinion ended up being a bit of an anticlimax. You know, it really was. Um,
1: They did not even get to the uh, substantive issue. Uh, As I mentioned, Justice Breyer wrote the opinion. He was joined by all but two conservative justices, Alito, and Gorsuch, but they determined, instead of getting to the substantive issues, that the parties, that means the states and the individuals who brought the case did not have standing to even challenge the law. So we're gonna just unpack that just very shortly. To have standing, a plaintiff must allege, in quotation marks, personal injury that is fairly traceable to the alleged unlawful conduct. Again, the unlawful conduct being Congress imposing an an individual mandate that that was potentially viewed as unconstitutional. So to have standing, the plaintiffs must allege, again, that they were injured by this. And the court held that neither the state nor the individual plaintiffs had shown that injury, um, that the injury they would suffer was traceable to the individual mandate. So the individuals pointed to the harm in the form of past and future pr- payments, meaning, uh, for example, if it was either premium payments that they had to incur because of buying the insurance um, or if it was penalty payments. Um, however the penalty because it was zeroed out the supreme court noticed the irs can no longer seek a penalty if you fail to comply and so therefore because of this there's no possible government action that is causally connected to the plaintiff's injury which is now just merely the cost of purchasing insurance and they noted that in the past cases consistently Um, There was a requirement that an injury that was the result of a statute's actual or threatened enforcement was required, but unenforceable statutory language like we're talking about here with just having the penalty remain on the books was just not enough. It was not sufficient to establish injury or standing. Now, if we turn to how the states argued injury, they said that because of the mandate being on the books, there was an increase in the use of and the cost of state health insurance programs. But again, the Supreme Court disagreed. They said that the states had failed to show that individuals really enrolled in their state health insurance programs because of the individual mandate rather than some other provision of the ACA. They held that the states had not shown that the mandate without any prospect of penalty would lead individuals to enroll in a state health insurance program.
0: Right, right. So now that we've got this case that didn't actually go to the merits of the constitutional merits of the ACA. Um, what can we expect now that this case is behind us?
1: Well, we look, obviously, to the Biden administration. They, as we would have expected, took a different position than the Trump administration on the case itself. And in February, they had actually sent a letter to the Supreme Court to communicate their position that they actually supported the individual mandate and that they felt that even if it was found unconstitutional, they thought it was severable from the rest of the ACA, and the ACA should remain in place either way, um, as we would expect. Uh, it's very clear that President Biden intends to build on the ACA and did not want it struck down. After the court's decision, he came out with a statement about the ruling and he said that he looks forward now to working with Congress on building on the law. And then if we can even we can look and see that he supported that by just his relief package that was enacted earlier this year, the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, And in that act, he temporarily expanded the scope and eligibility of the ACA's tax credits uh, that are available in the marketplace. And then now under his proposed American Families Plan, he is intending to make those tax credits permanent. So clearly between um, the expansion of the tax credits and his proposals on public options and reducing Medicare eligibility down to 60, he's really wanting generally the the status of the ACA to remain in place and then make some um, amended, amendments and alterations around the edges of it um, right. in order for it to remain.
0: Right. And that makes sense. I mean, when he was vice president, he was a key player in getting the ACA passed in the first place. So he has a lot of investment in this, uh, right. in this scheme. Um, so what does this mean, though, for employers right now?
1: Well, it means the law remains unchanged. And so for employers, that means continued compliance with the various requirements imposed by the ACA. So you you must continue to offer coverage to all full-time employees if you're a large employer and unfortunately continue to report on it. We've certainly sought to seek some amendments in the way in which reporting occurs and make it simpler. We may still see some attention back on that aspect of it now that this is uh, behind us. But I think what's important for employers to remember is that poll after poll shows that not only do voters prefer that the lawmakers just build on the ACA and not bring in some government run health care, but they also show that they're generally satisfied with their health insurance coverage. And so um, we can just look to a recent poll that was conducted by Locust Street Group. It found that 76 percent of voters were satisfied with their coverage coverage. Another poll by the Gallup survey found that 74% of Americans rate their health coverage as excellent or good, all of which shows that generally Americans can't want their coverage to remain as is. The employer-sponsored insurance market is very important to our system today with over 60% of individuals in our um, who are covered by insurance being covered by an employer-sponsored plan.
0: Right, so the ACA now is a, remains the status quo. So. Where do you see the next wave of health reform coming from? Well, I think we're gonna look to the states because
1: they're certainly gonna have more rapid reform than we're gonna see at the federal level. I mean, generally, it's gonna be really difficult to get any uh, changes through at the federal level. Right now, you see several states that have proposals for a public option. We've had states in the past, Vermont, California, Colorado, all seek to impose a public option, um, but fail to do so. We have had two states that have been successful, the most recent being Nevada, which signed into law on June 9th um, a public option that requires insurers that bid on on Medicaid, covering Medicaid recipients and state employees to also bid on offering a public option. State officials will select in-network providers under a public option and they'll mandate that those plans will charge 5% less in monthly premiums. um, And that probably goes to Washington that we'll talk about in just a moment but 5% less than other plans on the state insurance marketplace. And in four years, make it 15% less. So again, they want to attract people into that public option. Um, To enter the market, public option plans will have to undergo an actuarial study, and then the state would have to apply for a a waiver. It's that Section 1332 waiver with the federal government. So it's not just flip a switch, passed legislation, now it's, it's available in Nevada. There's certainly some, you know, some barriers that to actually having it implemented, but we'll continue to watch how successful that is in Nevada. Now, if we look to Washington, they actually passed this legislation back in 2019. So they were the first state that was able to, to pass legislation for a state rent solution um, in the nation. And there was a lot of disagreement over how the providers would be reimbursed. Initially, they wanted to make it at re- Medicare-level reimbursement. That was negotiated up to 160% of Medicare rates. Um, Consequently, the public option came out at a rate, at premium rates that were actually higher than some of the private plans that were offered on the marketplace. And so they only saw an uptake of about 1% or less than 1% of enrollees um, who opted for that public option plan. So we'll see how that develops now. I'm not sure what their enrollment looks like this year, um, but certainly they're gonna continue to try to work on that um, so we'll watch for developments
0: there. Indeed. I guess we can't go so far to say as two states are a trend, but uh, which they've shown that it can be done. It can be passed. It can be I'm, passed, right. <laughs> I would be surprised if other states were not watching their developments with interest. Absolutely. But, but at the what about, are there any rumblings at the federal level?
1: Well, I mean, at the federal level, there is evidence that the ACA is working. In, in 2021, we had nearly 31 million Americans that obtained health insurance coverage through the marketplace. Now, that's, of course, going to be largely attributable to um, those, uh, the changes that were made to the tax credit and the eligibility of those that were in, are now eligible for the tax credit and for the income caps. Um, on those that were uh, now eligible. So, just so many people can now qualify for those tax credits. And they did also limit the maximum amount that individuals would pay to 8.5% of, of income. And they also boosted subsidies, the amount of subsidies for other lower income consumers. So, there was a lot that was given to consumers to attract them into the marketplace. And of course, they're trying to make those permanent through the proposed. Um, plan now. So we'll watch for that. And we'll also, of course, watch for any changes in a public option or the the change in Medicare eligibility
0: age. Right. So the feds are opting more for the carrot than the stick this time to see if they can get more people into the market. Right. Right. So do you have any last thoughts on this now that we're now that the case is behind us? I think you know, given the Supreme Court's decision, the immediate
1: focus, of course, is going to be on making those tax credits permanent. There will be need to be some discussion around how those are going to be paid for. Of course, um, Congress is actively considering other proposals. For example, they're going to focus on drug pricing reforms. Um, they'll, as we mentioned, we will look at a public option and the Medicare uh, eligibility changes. Um, but I think, I think probably the next uh, really push is going to be in, in the drug pricing arena because that seems to have a lot of bipartisan support. So we continue to be involved in that debate through our involvement with the National Association of Health Underwriters, NEHU, through the American Benefits Council, the Council for Insurance Agents and Brokers. We stay engaged in, that, uh, in, in those measures, and so we will continue to do so and report on any developments at the federal level.
0: Agreed. We'll be keeping a sharp eye on this, both at the federal level and the the state level. Well, thank you for walking us through this today. Um, As we like to say in the podcast, I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us.